Weeks of meetings on climate change come to a close, but what's changing other than the climate? We'll explore today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. Reduce, reuse, recycle, they say, but now what? What's there to show for a conference on climate and what role can individuals play today? Also, tis the season for graduation. A 19-year-old gets her PhD in North Texas and we get schooled on her story. Space, the final frontier. What about that frontier separating Texas and Mexico? How Elon Musk may stand in the way of a border wall? All those stories and more today on the Texas Standard. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this Friday, December 14th. Big drama around the household this morning. Couldn't find the elves on the shelf. The search resumes later today. Dallas Morning News picked up on something rather interesting yesterday. A report by Governor Abbott's Commission on Reconstruction after Harvey makes repeated reference to something we may be hearing a lot more about in coming months and years. Future-proofing to future-proof Texas, a phrase that appears in the report repeatedly along with recommendations to elevate homes along the Gulf Coast, construct storm surge barriers, and offer buyouts in flood-prone areas. Now, you may be asking yourself, what exactly is future-proofing? Apparently, it's dealing with things like, quote, changing human environmental conditions, or again, quoting here, changing future weather patterns, phrase is also used in the report. What you won't find much of in the report, use of the phrase climate change. For the past two weeks, leaders from some 200 countries meeting in Poland have had somewhat less apparent reluctance uttering the double C phrase, but are nonetheless still struggling over what exactly to do about the planet getting warmer, leaving us where exactly? What are people, businesses, governments supposed to do to help us explore? Our producers have assembled quite the expert panel. Brady Dennis is a reporter for The Washington Post. He focuses on the environment and public health issues. He's currently in Poland for the Climate Change Conference. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, Also joining us on the line, uh, this time from the University of Washington in Seattle, it's Justin Penn. He is lead researcher in chemical oceanography there. Justin, uh, welcome to the Texas Standard. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. And here in the studio, it's Dr. Catherine Romanak. She is a research scientist at the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin. Good to see you, Dr. Romanak. Thank you so much. Um, I don't know where to begin with a with a subject quite this large, but Brady, perhaps we should begin with you since uh, you have been tasked with providing those of us back in the States with something of an overview. You write that the U.S. is having a leadership void among the international community when it comes to what's been happening in Poland over the last couple of weeks. What do you mean by that? What are, Give us an example. You know, the U.S. Uh, was really a driving force in, in what became the Paris Agreement in 2015. It pushed other nations to think ambitiously and, and, and to sign up for this um, this effort to cut global emissions and to, to combat climate change. And since the new administration, uh, you know, President Trump, as we all know, has said that um, he intends to withdraw from that agreement um, and so that's really changed the dynamic here. The, the United States, which was once the leader in these talks, is, you know, in many ways on the sidelines. And so that has left uh, a lot of folks looking for 
for other countries to to step up and and keep it going and push it forward. Indeed, do you see any other countries stepping up to play that larger role? Is there a sense of urgency coming from other world leaders? There is. I mean, but a a good point that a lot of folks have made to me this week is, you know, uh, it's hard to fill a U.S.-sized void. I mean, not many countries have the the clout and the the size of the U.S. And so, um, you know, for example, the EU has 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 kept pushing and said it wants to uh, do ambitious things to to have ambitious goals here. And and there's any number of other smaller countries uh, that would certainly agree with that. The question, I think, is whether um, some of the larger nations sign on and, and, and keep it going. Meanwhile, here in the States, uh, some listeners may be wondering about the sense of urgency that uh, these political figures and scientists are talking about. New research points to a worrisome study about the current state of our climate. Justin, tell us what you know about what the great dying is and what your research found. So the great dying is, is one of five mass extinctions in Earth's history. And it's the most severe mass extinction that we've seen in the fossil record. Now, we, we know it's related to volcanic greenhouse gas release, but, but we hadn't known the exact mechanism connecting greenhouse gas release to the collapse of, of the marine ecosystem until uh, my colleagues and I, we, we, we started a study where we actually took global climate simulations, test those predictions of extinction by looking in the fossil record and looking for the pattern of extinction across the planet. And lo and behold, what we see is that global warming and, and the loss of oxygen from the ocean would have caused the, the, the patterns of extinction at the Great Dying. So, so in a sense, obvious. we're talking about we've been here before, in a way. In a way, the, the changes that we're causing in, in, in the modern ocean by a greenhouse gas release into the atmosphere, namely ocean warming and the loss of seawater oxygen concentration, which we're seeing today, those would have been the drivers of the greatest extinction in the history of life. Well, you know, uh, Dr. Romanak, this none of this is very comforting. You know, you, you, first we were talking about the, the lack of leadership, and we hear that uh, there's a kind of mirroring of what happened during that great dying today. Um, I think a lot of people listening to us right now might wonder, well, so what as an individual can I do? Because, you know, many of us grew up with that mantra, uh, you know, uh, reuse, reduce, recycle. And yet it seems like such a small thing. And if governments aren't able to get their act together, then what? Well, first of all, I don't think the listeners should be, you know, overwhelmed by that. Once you're tapped in to the information that we know is science-based, correct, and real, then we can understand more the path forward. What we have to understand is that we need sweeping behavioral changes. One of the things that we can do is, for example, to look at every single material object that you use every day and see it as a carbon emission. Because the manufacture, the transport, and everything around that is a carbon emission. If everybody was committed to making a permanent behavioral change, just pick one. Maybe it's uh, no meat Mondays, or maybe it's you know taking a, um, a bottle with you wherever you go. We can actually participate in our own way in carbon trading, carbon market. How so? So if you go to www.offset.climateneutralnow, you can actually calculate your own personal carbon emissions, and then you can buy credits 
to offset your own personal emissions. Where does that money go when you say buy credits? So that that money goes to gold standard projects in developing countries that are reducing the emissions in developing countries. So, for example, if you find that you have taken a trip on an airplane and that's uh, 30 tons of CO2 or 10 tons of CO2, Mm -hmm. then you can buy carbon offsets at $3 per ton, and that money will go towards certified United Nations um, projects for developing country low-carbon development. Brady, how does that sound to you as someone who covers these issues? I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, when we talk about cutting emissions or the world cutting its emissions, I mean, it, it... there is a question of scale. I mean, it, it won't happen without the involvement of governments and businesses and states and cities alike. I mean, it's, it's something on all those levels. But, you know, what are governments if not made up of people? So I think people shouldn't be uh, necessarily overwhelmed when they hear about this problem in the sense that we all have a we all have a role to play in causing it. And, and I think we all have to have a role to play in solving it. And, and so uh Individuals certainly have a role, just as governments must have a role. Justin, are you optimistic that that things can be turned around uh, before another uh, great dying, as, as we've been discussing? Yeah, I am, and the reason for that is the great dying was caused by a volcanic greenhouse gas release, whereas modern climate change is being caused by us, being caused by humans. And so we've identified the problem in this work that was just published, But in doing so, we've also identified the solution, and that's to cut emissions of CO2 into the atmosphere to to stop the emissions. And I think that, for me, the the greatest behavioral change that an individual can make is to get out and vote for leaders that believe in climate change and believe in climate change solutions. Dr. Roman, we were talking a little bit before we went uh, on the air here. Uh, about some of your specific research, which has been on carbon capture. And I was reading another uh, story which said that carbon capture may be our best, and some say, uh, only backstop at this juncture. What say you? Yes. Well, the special report of the IPCC, again, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, absolutely agrees with that. Um, We have the technology at the Gulf Coast Carbon Center. We study, and we have been studying for 20 years, um, the capture of carbon from large industrial sources and its disposal or storage in deep geological formations. So you're saying the technology is there. Is it cost effective? The technology is here, and we can do storage very easily, but the capture is the thing that's Mm -hmm. quite expensive right now. They found um, cost reductions of 67% for the capture portion. So we're getting there. Obviously, this is an enormous issue, and uh, we're grateful to have quite the panel of experts talking about it, but we've only started to scratch the surface. We'll have some other resources online at texasstandard.org. You've just been hearing the voice of Catherine Romanak. She is research scientist at the Bureau of Economic Geology, UT Austin. Justin Penn has been on the line from Seattle, where he is an earth scientist at the University of Washington. And Brady Dennis, he's national reporter for the Washington Post speaking to us from the climate conference in Poland. Uh, Folks, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. We appreciate your participation. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
Let's find out what Texans are talking about on this Friday. Social media editor Wells Dunbar is back in the studio. Hi, David. We're hearing from our friends and listeners about our roundtable on global warming and the steps some of them are taking individually to curb their own carbon emissions. Via Twitter, Mickey Maynard says, Long ago when gas prices shot above $4 a gallon, I began grouping my errands. I waited until I had three or four stops to make before venturing out. I never went out for one thing, and the habit stuck, hmm. even though gas is currently around $2 up here. My, and my Prius gets 49 miles per gallon. I still wait. And Jimmy O tweets us, An easy thing for most Texas consumers to use is PowerToChoose.org, the website where you can choose a renewable electricity plan. This creates a market incentive for more renewable power in the grid, and if you're not frequently changing providers, you may even save money. Again, that website for those consumers that can choose their own power utility, powertochoose.org. And here's another here's another question we're seeing. What about that exploratory committee? On Stephen Colbert's show last night, Joaquin Castro said his twin brother Julian is going to run for president. How about that? Yeah. I guess the cat's out of the bag. Well, David. you know, I think we're going to have a little discussion about that later yeah. in the broadcast when we uh, take a look at the week that was in Texas politics. So don't you touch that dial. Wells Dunbar will be back in 35 with more of the Talk of Texas. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. You got it tuned to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Happy holidays? Oh, you bet. They're especially happy for a student at the University of Texas in Denton today. I believe that's the University of North Texas, actually, in Denton. She is set to get her Ph.D. with a diploma to prove it at the ripe old age of 19. KERA's Bill Zebel has her story. Only a few months into pre-K, Noelle Jett was so intellectually bright that her mom pulled her from school to teach her at home. Her fast-paced education never slowed. By 13, Jett began community college. At 14, she entered Texas A&M and College Station, living off campus with mom. At 16, she graduated, but was just warming up. The PhD thing, I got my bachelor's degree in a total of three years. And then someone says, would you like to spend three years getting a master's? No. <laughs> uh, and so I knew I was going to go towards my PhD. And when you get a PhD, your master's is kind of nullified. Jet lived on the University of North Texas campus the last three years, getting her doctorate in educational psychology. Mom Nancy Shasted says her daughter's intellectual curiosity focused on psychology almost from the start. The first sign I had for sure was then when she would ask me questions, why other kids were doing things. And it'd be, as a three-year-old, like, well, I don't know, sweetie, I guess she wanted to do that. And she would be like, okay, but why would she want to do that? She just seemed to be very curious about why people did what they did. In some ways, Shastid might have seen herself when looking at her young daughter. Mom was exceptional, too. She says she entered college at age 16 as a way to move up and out. I just wanted a degree that I could get a job at. I want to be able to support myself and not in abject poverty. Jet's doctorate degree focuses on the behavior of young, gifted students like her. Through the years, she's been called a genius, among other things. Oh, I'm a former child prodigy, <laughs> the most offensive of all the terms assigned to me. Jet will accept profoundly gifted, though she dislikes almost all labels. She says they're good for data or in schools, not as an identity. She was a TV contestant on Millionaire Whiz Kids at 15, 
winning $25,000, but answering wrong on a question worth a lot more. She applied to numerous graduate schools and got accepted only at UNT. So she says she's not the perfect brainiac, people may assume. Jet's got a normal life, including a boyfriend, church mission work, music, she plays piano, sings and writes songs, and in the classroom, she says school's never been easy because she's always the youngster. Everything was hard in a different way. I just feel like some were hard in an invigorating way and some were hard in an exhausting way. A psychology class? Invigorating. A course on hierarchical linear modeling? Exhausting. Still, she loves it. That may show in her dissertation. The actual title is Radically Early College Entrance on Radically Early College Entrance. <laughs> and I had, again, sort of that thing I had people say, this isn't a professional title. And I said, yes, it's my title. I'm well aware it's unprofessional. That's because I wrote it. What's next for the Irving student? Then I'm going back to school, shocker, um, to get my master's in counseling. I'm going to be a therapist. Because Jet's greatest joy, she says, comes from reaching and helping people one-on-one. -on -one. Five years from now, she hopes to be working with clients in a successful practice. There's also an alternative dream. Five years from now, I'm a rock star living in Singapore, making people happy. Perhaps performing one of her songs like Faded Away. After all, this newly minted PhD is still a teenager. When our time comes and we feel outdated. In Dallas, I'm Bill Zebel. Kids will be smarter and faster and will be intimidated. So we'll call them dumb because we're big kids now and frustrated. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorksafeTexas.com. You're listening to the Texas Standard. An historic church, a butterfly sanctuary, President Trump has faced numerous potential barriers to building his barrier between the U.S. and Mexico. Well, add another one to the list, Elon Musk. As the New York Times reports, a portion of proposed border wall would cut through a tract of land belonging to SpaceX South Texas launch site. Joining us now, Mitchell Furman. He is a reporter at the McAllen Monitor who, with Ron Nixon, reported this story for the New York Times. Mitchell, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thanks for having me. Uh, where exactly is this proposed border wall site? I suppose we need to paint a picture for radio listeners here. So SpaceX is currently under construction in the South Texas town of Boca Chica Village, which is a small community in between Brownsville, uh, which is on the border, and the, the Gulf of Mexico. Nice. Coast. So just how much would this proposed wall cut through the SpaceX facility they're, they're finishing up? It's unknown right now uh homeland security they've been issuing uh notices to property owners along the along the border to potentially you know to kind of survey their site and spacex received one of these notices recently um also there there has been no wall funding um appropriated from congress for that for, for cameron county which is where brownsville and boca chica are so it, it's it's unknown how much exactly would cut through at this moment but the fact that they're that homeland security is 
you know, surveying that area is, is interesting. You know, Elon Musk doesn't have a reputation for being particularly restrained. Um, you know, we just think of his tweets and some of his uh, uh, infamous uh, appearances online over the past year or so. Has he offered any indication of uh, a reaction to receiving this letter? Any sense of how he might proceed here? He has not. But we uh, we talked to a, a SpaceX spokesman who, you know, it was kind of we've received the request and we're kind of evaluating how we're going to respond and they're they're in communication with with homeland security about you know what exactly to do and and yeah no i don't they haven't they haven't said what exactly they're going to do you know i mentioned uh when we got started that this is just the latest uh, of, of several facilities venues that are complaining about the border wall cutting through their property i mentioned the butterfly sanctuary and you have that historic uh, church site too and of course you have all these private property owners how is this playing out? I mean, at the end of the day, I suppose, with eminent uh, uh, domain being what it is, can't they just take the land? Is there going to be much of a dispute here? They can, um, but there are, also, there are also lawsuits. And from the initial, uh, when, there were, when there was a border wall constructed um, stemming from the end of President Bush's tenure, mm-hmm. there are still roughly 80 outstanding lawsuits from 2008 uh so expect plenty of litigation from this from this go around as well uh which will cause plenty of plenty of headaches and plenty of hurdles for for the federal government however they can still take land and begin construction but the but the legal process will still will still play out. And could play out for, for many years, it sounds like. Mitchell right. Furman reports for The Monitor in McAllen, and he co-reported this story with Ron Nixon for The New York Times. Mitchell, thanks for speaking with us on The Texas Standard, and a happy holidays to you and yours. Thanks for having me. Wow, we're fast approaching 29 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. You know what that means, right? We got the Texas Roundup, our roundup of what's making news across the Lone Star State, just around the corner. Don't touch that dial. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, partnering with SAP to provide mid-market companies a real-time view of their financials, cash, and liquidity while streamlining accounting processes. More at softwareispromised.com. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. A pair of Texas congressmen are calling for an investigation into the death of a seven-year-old Guatemalan girl in Border Patrol custody. One of them is Democratic U.S. Representative Joaquin Castro of San Antonio. The chairman-elect of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus told NPR's Morning Edition today the death was not reported in a timely manner. So I think it's important to realize that CBP Commissioner McAleenan went in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee on December 11th and didn't say a word about the death of this young girl. Castro is referencing Kevin McAleenan, the commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection. The girl crossed into the United States from Mexico illegally with her father last week as part of a group of about 160 migrants. They were apprehended on December 6 by Border Patrol officers in New Mexico. After the girl began having seizures, she was taken to an El Paso hospital where she died from dehydration and shock. The Washington Post, which first reported the story, cites a CBP statement saying the young girl had not eaten or had water in several days. Castro says it's going to take a thorough investigation to find out what happened. I think it's true that 163 people for a a small Border Patrol station is a lot of people to deal with, 
but you would also think that you can identify somebody who is on the verge of death. And so we've got to figure out whether she made requests for food or for water. U.S. Representative Beto O'Rourke of El Paso has also called for an investigation. Tomorrow is the last day to sign up for health insurance through healthcare.gov, the online marketplace created by the Affordable Care Act. Ashley Lopez with KUT News in Austin says it's the last chance for people who don't get health insurance through their employer, Medicaid or Medicare to get coverage. Groups helping people sign up for plans here in Central Texas say there's been a slight uptick in enrollment in the past few days. Earlier during the enrollment period, groups were reporting a significant decrease in the number of people signing up. In the Austin area, people looking for coverage on the government website can pick from more than 30 plans. More than 80 percent of people who bought plans last year qualified for financial assistance. According to experts, about 4 million people in the U.S. who are currently uninsured qualify for a free health plan through the website. Ashley Lopez, KUT News. A report commissioned by Texas officials in the wake of Hurricane Harvey makes recommendations on how to prepare for future disasters. Governor Greg Abbott formed the commission to rebuild Texas after the historic storm and picked Texas A&M University Chancellor John Sharp to lead it. Sharp presented the report at the Texas Capitol yesterday. What we think this will do is make the recovery part of it or the response part of it the best in the United States of America. The 178-page report recommends changes like streamlining applications for disaster relief and improving the debris removal process. Hurricane Harvey made landfall on the Texas coast in August 2017 as a Category 4 storm. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. Big news in Texas, certainly noticed nationwide. Apple announcing yesterday it's opening its biggest campus outside Cupertino right here in the Texas capital city. Estimates of at least 5,000 new jobs, maybe more. Underscores something the Bureau of Labor Statistics tells us that software developer is one of the most in-demand gigs in the U.S. And like other cities, San Antonio wants more of that action too. Texas Public Radio's Paul Flab tells us San Antonio is soon to have a point person dedicated to lassoing more of those tech jobs. Brian Ryder works with local job recruiters at TriStar Technologies. He says those software developer jobs are hard to fill right now. You could probably put that advertisement up and leave it out there for a year and probably not find one qualified candidate. But it isn't just software developers that are in demand, says Brookings Institution's Mark Miro. His work shows all industries require more digital skills from their workers, and the U.S. is not producing enough of them at any level. There's just uh, there's too few of them and too many, too much demand. The city and county are funding a position called the Chief Talent and Recruitment Officer, or CTRO. The job will be administered by TechBlock, the local technology industry nonprofit. It will recruit technology workers from outside the area, match local talent with jobs, and create online tools. Good evening. Developing tonight, the San Antonio tech scene taking a hit as Rackspace announces cuts to its workforce here and... David Marquez says Rackspace's layoffs in February 2017 highlighted the need for this job. Marquez is the executive director of Bear County's Economic and Community Development. He says the area didn't have someone who could focus on keeping those talented workers here. Yeah, that's clearly a, 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 was a catalyst, especially early on. But the beginning of this were people advocating for the needs of the small company. Easing the expensive burden of recruiting for tech companies is the goal, and so is getting better data on what the local industry needs and what talent San Antonio has. We're trying to use this as a way of, of gathering intel by which we can shape our recruitment and retention strategies more clearly around the actual talent base that we have, 
or could have or will have in the future. Deborah Carter formerly ran Open Cloud Academy, a boot camp program training people to connect with certificate-based technology jobs, like systems administrators. Despite the organization's successes, she says employers often didn't know they were turning out good candidates. It was, you know, Liquid Web saying, I hired so many systems administrators and they're working out great within our organization. And that's when another employer would pop up and reach out to us. She says the CTRO job can help close that gap, filling jobs faster. My whole job is to make your life easier and connecting talent to your opportunity. Talent fuels growth. Full stop. Dax Moreno is stepping into the CTRO role after past leader Janine Wilde left for medical reasons after a few months. Setting up this program is a tall order in a town that regularly ranks at the bottom of real estate investor CBRE's top 50 tech talent markets. TechBlock's David Hurd says local companies like USAA, HEB, and even mid-sized technology companies are sending their jobs to Austin. I don't blame them. You know, they're doing what they need to do to grow their business. San Antonio is often competing against its neighbor to the north for talent and employers. Austin has more than double San Antonio's 31,000 tech workers. San Antonio is a tier two, tier three city at best with regard to the state of our IT ecosystem in town. The only way we're going to close the gap is to do some things that are um, a little out of the box, a little out of the ordinary, and get creative. Mark Muro with Brookings says he hasn't seen anything like the matchmaking approach of this CTRO program. Putting what usually is a complex and loose process of connecting employees and employers together on one person. If this works, it's a really important experiment and would be something highly implementable in lots of places. He says it's a lot to bite off, but it could work. A forthcoming Brookings study shows 90 percent of communities are running a deficit on things like developers. So if he were to give advice on growing the talent pool... It would be to focus on the local talent rather than playing what he calls the dangerous game of attraction. For the majority of places, attraction isn't going to be the main solution, right? Most places can't, so you have to be doing these things. And that is improving the incumbent local pool. Despite the job being vacant for nearly a year, followed by the departure of its first leader, community leaders are still supportive. The need is there, they say and they're willing to try this out. In San Antonio, I'm Paul Flav for the Texas Standard. In an investigation into sexual assault allegations against a Houston area priest, officials have come across information on more than 20 clergy members who faced claims of misconduct in the last decade, including criminal allegations. Houston Chronicle reporting on files seized during the execution of a search warrant at the Shalom Center in Splendora. The files identified priests treated at the center, including details about at least five priests publicly accused of sexual misconduct in Texas, California, and Missouri. It's a developing story, one of many we continue to track here at the Texas Standard. We are coming up on 39 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horned frogs strive to be a force for the greater good, like Professor Liren Ma who is developing a program to make an iPhone operate as an inexpensive hearing aid. TCU, lead on. I'm Margaret Cook, the museum director here at the Bullock Texas State History Museum, and we're so excited to be unveiling our Becoming Texas exhibition that covers 16,000 years of Texas history. 
I'm Frank Cordes, curator for the Bullock Texas State History Museum and curator for the Becoming Texas exhibit. This is an exhibition that has been in the making for more than a decade, and it all started with the finding of La Belle in Matagorda Bay, which is a 300-year-old French shipwreck that Texas Historical Commission raised from the silt. But that's only one piece of the story. We really wanted to show how long human habitation has been in Texas, so that's what takes us back 16,000 years ago. About 40 miles north from Austin here, there was an incredible discovery, archaeological discovery, that included some projectile points, some little arrowheads, if you will. So we start the story of Texas right there at 16,000 years ago. And then we fast forward to a couple thousand years ago to the French arrival, the Spanish arrival, and on to Mexican independence. On the wall here, we have a hello wall where there are different ways to say hello in some of the native languages from the area. So there are several different tribes represented in the exhibit. The tribes and nations that were here in pre-1821 Texas are all represented in the exhibition. We have lots of tactile and interactive experiences. Um, we have areas where you can test your strength in terms of hunting a bison, which would have been your main um, means of sustenance as one of the tribes. I have tested my strength. I don't think I could bring down a bison. Uh, I haven't tested that yet, <laughs> but I will tell you that for most folks who were using bow and arrows at the time, they could shoot about 20 arrows in a minute, so if you think about how quickly they could get those arrows out, it's pretty amazing compared to how long it took a European to reload a musket. The bow and arrows were much more efficient. Even through these 16,000 years of history, people are people. They've raised families, they've built communities, they've been at war with one another, they've forged alliances. And so the remnants of all of that humanness is what we're still leaving for people in the future, along with a lot of electronics. <laughs> I am Margaret Cook, Museum Director for the Texas State History Museum. I am Frank Cordes, Curator for the Texas State History Museum. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to, to the, the Texas, Texas Standard. Standard. On Election Day in Stanton, just north of Midland, Ron Black was skeptical that a particular measure on the ballot would pass. Well, I think at first it was, uh, nobody thought it would go through because they've tried it so many times, you know, and this is, I can't tell you how many times it's gone, it's gone to the ballot. Black manages the Lawrence Brothers Grocery in Stanton. The vote was whether to keep Stanton dry, that is, prohibit the sale of alcohol, or to allow the sale of beer and wine at stores like Black's. But to his surprise, Stanton went wet after all. And as the Texas Standard's Michael Marks reports, it's part of a long-term trend that's washing over Texas. To put it in perspective, in 1996, there were 53 dry counties in Texas. 
by 2011, that number dropped to 25. And as of Election Day, when Stanton, the seat of Martin County, went wet, there are now just five dry counties in Texas. Out of 254, just five. In a state whose attitudes toward alcohol have always been complex, but tended to be more conservative than the country as a whole. Texas is slightly earlier than the nation and slightly later than the nation in terms of how long its prohibition was enforced. That's Brendan Payne, a history professor at North Greenville University and an expert in prohibition in Texas. In the late 1880s, many immigrant communities and some religious groups were skeptical of prohibition, but others drove the bus full speed toward temperance. The large evangelical churches get behind it, especially the Methodists and Baptists. But these days, demand for alcohol is a bigger driver. Kimberly Frost is a liquor lawyer from Austin. The public wants to be able to shop for what they want when they want it closer to home, especially when you're talking about a convenience store or a grocery store. I mean, the margins on the alcoholic beverage are the biggest in the store sometimes. In Texas, decisions on whether a community sells booze are made during local elections by cities, counties, or justice of the peace precincts. Voters can decide for themselves whether they want to go wet or dry, as well as at what level say, selling just beer and wine as opposed to liquor, for example, or selling alcohol at just restaurants or just convenience stores. The system was put in place after statewide prohibition was repealed in 1935. Since then, the number of dry counties has slowly ebbed away. The five exceptions include Throckmorton County, located in a rural area northwest of Fort Worth. Will Carroll is the mayor of its county seat, He's tried to turn Throckmorton wet for most of the 18 years he's been the mayor, partly for personal reasons. You know, I want to go down and buy a six-pack of beer at Alsop's. And, and if I could, I would definitely buy a really nice Cabernet. But mostly because of what it could mean for local coffers. You know, that's what I try to tell people is that if you want your property tax lowered, the sale of alcohol is a way to do it because not only do you have the sales tax from the sale of alcohol, but you also have the potential for new businesses that pay property tax. So, I mean, there's a you know potential for a lot more revenue. An economic analysis firm based in Waco called the Perryman Group found in 2008 that in a Texas community of 25,000 people, alcohol sales produced an average of $19 million in annual spending and supported 185 jobs. Those figures scale up with bigger communities, which is a compelling argument. But the real shift toward dry county extinction came during the Texas legislative session in 2003 with the passage of House Bill 1199. That is what revolutionized our alcohol laws. That's John Hatch, president of Texas Petition Strategies. To hold a wet, dry election in Texas prior to 2003, you had to get signatures from 35% of all a jurisdiction's registered voters, each of which had to sign their name exactly as it appeared on their voter ID card with their voter ID number. And you only had 30 days to do it. It was more difficult to get booze on the ballot than an actual candidate. So Hatch asked the legislature to change the law. They gave us everything we asked for. We went from needing 35% of all voters to 35% of the last election for governor. So it made a lot more manageable. We doubled the amount of time from 30 days to 60 days. We made the signature requirement the same as any other petition. If you sign your name, Michael Marks, that's good enough. A flood of elections followed. 
In the 15 years preceding the law, there were about 150 wet-dry elections statewide. In the 15 years following the law, there were close to 950 elections. Nearly 80% of those went wet. Although Throckmorton was in the 20% that stayed dry, Mayor Carroll hopes that changes. Given the current trend, it might just be a matter of time. For the Texas Standard, I'm Michael Marks. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. I am Jody Edgerton, and I'm with the Typewriter Rodeo. And we are a group that crafts custom poems on vintage typewriters. You give us a word, an idea, a phrase, something you'd like a poem about, and we will write you a poem on the spot. The Cone. I am not entirely sure what I did to warrant this cone that is preventing me from scratching my itchy stitches, but it is most surely the most inopportune place a human has stuck a cone. I am trying fiercely to look cool but I keep bonking my nose into walls and getting snagged on corners. And although I am trying as hard as I can to connect my tongue with the world outside this cone, I am starting to wonder if my new forever is just front me in cone, patiently missing back me, which was a good part of me to scratch. I'm Jody Edgerton, and you're on Texas Standard Time. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Children's Hospital, located in Houston. For more than 60 years, committed to putting care for the nation's tiniest cowboys and cowgirls first. More information is available at texaschildrens.org. Well, you know how this works, right? You send us a poem idea, any idea will do. We pass it along to our friends at the Typewriter Rodeo. Then you can tune in each Friday here on The Standard. You can also find the Typewriter Rodeo any old time on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Could it be? Oh, wow. Yes, it is. It is Friday. So it's time for us to turn our attention to the week that was in Texas politics. Joining us today, Vanessa Boucher, Associate Professor of Political Science at TCU, Texas Christian University up in the Fort Worth area. Professor Boucher, welcome to The Standard. Thank you. Uh, Texas presidential buzz this week, Julian Castro seemed to be inching his hat a little closer to the ring. Did he not? He did. He said that he's putting together an exploratory committee um, to explore, you know, across the country whether or not he would be a contender for the presidency. And, you know, of course, he and his brother appeared on uh, Stephen Colbert's show. Mm -hmm. And his brother, Joaquin, actually announced for him that he is indeed going to run. (laughs) Yeah, well, what's interesting is Texans could have a front row seat in this uh, presidential sweepstakes because I understand that uh, another uh, soon-to-be former congressman from Texas may be throwing his hat into the ring as well. Sounds like uh, Beto O'Rourke is getting a little serious. Yeah, it does seem that way. Um, He's, 
you know, of course, after uh, his loss for the Senate bid, he has met with former President Obama and um, has been speaking to some of Obama's former operatives. I thought he said he wouldn't run. Of course, that was during his uh, Senate bid. Right. He has been very tentative um, during the Senate bid. Of course, he, he wanted to keep his eye on the prize, which was the Senate. But afterwards, I think with all of the momentum that he's generated, not only in Texas, but across the country, um, he you know, he's had donors from all 50 states and he generated a lot of energy among uh, young voters, unlikely voters, minority voters. The question, of course, is, I think for the Democratic nomination, First of all, it's going to be a very crowded playing field. But beyond that, I think that there's uh, enthusiasm to have some uh, either woman or minority or both candidates for president. And I think there may be some frustration among some members of the Democratic Party that Beto has gotten so much attention regarding whether or not he's going to be running, mm-hmm. whereas people like Stacey Abrams, who lost, of course, in Georgia, but is also a, a contender potentially, mm-hmm. um, has has not gotten as much attention. And uh, there was also an election, a special election, to replace Sylvia Garcia in the Texas Senate. Uh, she's out of the Houston area. She won a U.S. House race back in November. She's headed to Washington. Who's going to replace Garcia in uh, in the state house? It appears that uh, Carol Alvarado will be replacing her. There was a, a four-way race for that seat, and the person needed to win by a majority, mm-hmm. and it looked like potentially there was going to need to be a runoff, but at the last moment, Carol Alvarado pulled it off um, with 50.4% of the vote, and it ended up being... Um, down to the the 57 voters who voted for her that allowed her to uh, get the majority. Your vote counts, Texas. Think of that next time you're you're considering whether or not you're going to actually cast your ballot. Vanessa Boucher follows politics. She's Associate Professor of Political Science at Texas Christian University. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Well, here we are, end of the work week. Social media editor Wells Dunbar is joining us back again in the studio to talk about, uh, well, what Texans are talking about. There we are. We made it. Made it. Oh, man. Made it. <laughs> feels like it. Yeah, it sure does. And you know what it, What else it feels like? It also feels like the start of uh, a political election season, Hard even though we haven't even yeah gotten out of 2018 yeah. here yet. Yeah. But uh, them's the breaks, as we heard. Uh, interesting moment there last night on the Stephen Colbert show as Joaquin Castro said this about his brother, Julian, who was sitting right there. Julian's going to run for president. How about that? So you can put an end to all this speculation surprise, about the surprise. exploratory committee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No big no big surprise there. Lots of folks sounding off, though. Artie Verbugre, Verbugre, excuse me there. Yes, Artie Verbugre says the Castro brothers on Colbert were wonderful and invigorating and would welcome such a candidacy. However, Barb Rivera has some reservations. She says, I like both Castro brothers, but I don't think he has a chance, referring there to Julian and a pretend, potential presidential run. She goes on to cite something interesting, though, some potential Senate speculation on Cornyn's seat in 2020. Interesting. Which also, you know, of course, Beto O'Rourke has uh, been a part, a big part of. That's right. A lot of, you know, a lot of people forget he's uh, he's up for re-election 2020. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, interesting stuff there. You know, also hearing from folks about uh, our big 
roundtable on climate change uh-huh. and the role of individuals. What can we do as people? What can governments do, etc.? Max Anderson uh, had some very interesting remarks via Twitter. He writes this, that yes, we need to reduce carbon on an individual level, but please put it in context that 100 companies are responsible for 71% of the greenhouse gas out there. He's citing uh, a report, I believe, from The Guardian, the London-based paper there, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, did the math on that. Max goes on to say that battling climate change is not something we can accomplish on an individual level. We need buy-in from governments and corporations both. I think that was something that one yeah. of our guests was uh, mm-hmm. noting, that we're talking about uh, scale. How do you yeah. scale this uh, these individual actions up? And so, obviously, uh, something that folks are talking about Exactly. Online. And lots of people are sort of advocating to go big on that sort of thing. Uh, you know, uh, speaking of politics, uh, you know, one of the biggest players out there, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and her big push for uh, the so-called Green New Deal, seeing a lot of movement on that as the Congress in uh, D.C. gears up to begin in the new year so whether or not uh, that push for a select committee that she's behind to get that thing going the so-called green new deal will take off it remains to be seen but we lots of chatter see. online there we too shall see indeed yeah changing of the guard on capitol hill we're out of time for the big broadcast but the news continues at texasstandard.org you can join us there and we certainly hope you'll join us back on the air on monday till then i'm david brown along with wells dunbar and the rest of the team here wishing you all the very best for the weekend Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Waldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. Would your company or organization like to be a sponsor as well? Contact your local station for opportunities within your community. For statewide sponsorships, visit TexasPublicMediaNetwork.com. Public Radio International.